Well, good morning, and thank you for being here. I'm Jared Kirk, pastor of Renewal Church. I grabbed my own music stand today. The last thing my wife said to me before I left the house this morning, she, said, she knew I was teaching about sex. She said, stay on your notes today. Just do all of us a favor, save us the awkward moments, stay on your notes. Um, it is going to be a PG-13 service, so um, it, you know if, if you got a preschooler or an elementary schooler, you may want to, or, or if you were homeschooled, you may need to step outside. Uh, but I do think I'm qualified to talk on, about this. I, I've been married for 13 years now. I have three children. So I've had sex three times, and I want to I bring the thunder today. I'm going to help you. Uh, but here's the, here's the real thing about sex at Renewal Church is, I, for real, I, what I want to do is I want to share with you what no one told me. I, I, I want to, you know, maybe if I could spare someone just a little bit of agony or regret in their life, and I could help you just a little bit today, I want to help you. Because I don't know about you, but nobody ever told me what the deal was. Um, I, I got the talk when I was, well, it, most people got the talk from their parents, right? Now, I got the talk when I was way too young. I did not understand a word of what my, and my dad didn't do it, my mom did it, because I know how that conversation went, because I'm an adult now and I can watch their relationship. So I know that my, um, my mom was like, Woodrow, you really need to go talk to Jared about that kind of stuff. He's got some hair on his armpits. And my dad was like, I'm not touching that conversation with a 10-foot pole. So my mom came and had the conversation with me. And the whole thing lasted about five minutes, which was five minutes too long. But I was young, and I didn't understand what she was talking about. You know, when you got the talk, your parents probably, their main message maybe was, don't do it. But I didn't know what was going on. My mom's message to me was, use protection. And so I have kept a gun in my bedside table ever since that day. No, but that, that, that's real. It was like, hey, just make sure you use protection. That was mom's big message, her five-minute sex talk. And that was supposed to prepare me for an entire lifetime of what can be the most powerful thing in a person's life, can be one of the most life-giving things or one of the most destructive things in my entire life. Uh, my guess is that your parents probably didn't do much more than that with you. And the gaps in that were not filled in by the church. I didn't grow up going to church. And we, even when I did go to church, the church's message was largely the same thing that most of our parents said, which is, don't do it. And they never explained why you shouldn't do it, so we all did it. And so our knowledge on sex has been largely filled in by pop psychology, anecdotes from friends, and awkward personal experiences. So what I want to do today is hopefully give you a little bit of guidance that I wish someone had given to me when I was single when I was a teenager, when I was in my 20s, before I got married, because I want to save you maybe, maybe just a little bit of heartache. There are people today who are married and in the relationship, they're married and they, they, um, they're, they're struggling in their marriage and they, they've never connected it to the fact of the, the, the sexual choices that they made when they were younger, before they were married. And so there are women in marriages who feel, who feel numb. There, and there's single women too who feel numb and disconnected from God. They, they feel disconnected in relationships. They, they struggle to feel passion for somebody. 
And there are married women who, who they've never connected that to the sexual choices they made before they were married. There are men who cannot be satisfied in their relationship. They cannot feel passion towards their wife like they want to. They're always having to look outside of that marriage relationship for something else. And they've never connected that to the sexual choices they made before they were married. And if I could, and, and you know, if, if I could save you just a little bit of heartache and regret, that's what I want to do. And so I want to try to be as honest with you as possible. And I don't want you to get to that place in your life without somebody telling you what I wish had been told to me. And that's what today is all about. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to try to clarify the Bible's teaching on sex. And then I'm going to give you the four purposes of sex in the Bible. <clears throat> now, there's no teaching notes today because I wrote this sermon twice. I wrote it on Tuesday and it was fine. It was fine. Um, and the longer I sat with it, the more I thought, it's not honest enough. Um, it sucked. It was, it, was a bad, it was a bad message. So I rewrote this last night. And uh, that's why there's no teaching notes for you today. And so I want to give you the Bible's teaching on sex and then the five purposes of sex in the Bible. So let's start with the Bible's teaching on sex. The Bible has an outrageous and shocking view of sex. It's just, it's just absolutely shocking to contemporary ears. Our society has a view of sex um, that's twofold. The first way in our society sex is generally thought of as an appetite, like hunger or thirst. So if you are hungry, you eat food. If you're thirsty, you drink. If you want sex, you have sex that it's primarily physical. And you, you know that this is one of the views our society has about sex by shopping at the grocery store. Because when you go to the checkout aisle, what do all the magazines tell you? How do you have a better sex life? It's all about the technique. It's all about the moves. You get the moves like Jagger, you know? Now, we know that that couldn't be totally true because if it was, they wouldn't have to keep coming out with ma magazines you know, it's like, how many different techniques could there possibly be? But we see that in our society that sex is seen as an appetite. Now, there's a deeper meaning of sex in our broader society that I think has emerged and been clarified over the last 10 years. And the deeper meaning of sex in our wider society is thought to be self-expression. To be an authentic individual, you have to look deep, deep down inside of yourself. And whatever you discover there, whatever desires you uncover, you must act out in order to be true to yourself. The prophet of our society is probably actually Shakespeare. This above all, to thine own self be true. You must be true to yourself as an authentic individual. And if you think about it, <coughs> this makes sense because... In this view, if, if, self, if sex is primarily self-expression, then the greatest sin you could commit would be to deny your desires or suggest that anyone else deny their desires because you would not be being true to yourself. You would not be an authentic person when you look deep down inside yourself and discover your desires there. The Bible has a contrasting and shocking view of sex. If our society sees sex as an appetite or as self-expression, the Bible 
stands in stark contrast, explicitly rejecting the merely physical nature of sex. It rejects the idea that sex is an appetite. Now, the primary text on this is 1 Corinthians 6.13, and if you brought your Bible today, you can open there. There's going to be a few verses from there. And here's what 1 Corinthians 6.13 says on sex is an appetite. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So uh, this was the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians, but he's quoting an argument that they made to him about sex. So they wrote him a letter, and in that letter they said, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Their, their, their argument is almost literally, sex is like your hunger, your appetite with hunger. Sex is an appetite, therefore, if you want to have sex, you should have sex. And this is rejected. He says, but the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. So the idea that sex is just physical is explicitly rejected by the Bible. Now, it's not not physical, quite obviously, but it's so much more than physical. And if you treat sex like it's only physical, you will encounter pain, you will encounter regret, you will encounter heartbreak. Now, follow the reasoning here. Because sex is not just physical, Therefore, our bodies are not made for sexual immorality. That word sexual immorality in English is nice and vague, but in Greek it's very specific. It's the word pornea, which is where we get our word pornography. But it has a very specific meaning in Greek. It means any sexual activity that is not between a husband and a wife. That's what the word means. So the reasoning is because sex is not just physical, Therefore, our bodies are not made for sexual immorality. So the Bible, instead of seeing, well, let me, let me put it this way. The Bible would agree that sex is an act of self-expression. However, the Bible would go further than that and say sex is, um, you are always expressing radical self-commitment. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.16 makes this point. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. Now, don't get too hung up on prostitute there. Because in the ancient world, there was no category of single unmarried people. And so if you were single and you were unmarried and you were having sex, that's a prostitute. But the idea here is that sex is not only is it not just physical, it is an act of radical self-commitment. When the Bible says, it said the two will become one flesh, it doesn't, one flesh is not just talking about physical union. It must mean more than that because when you read the verse, it would be saying, don't you know that if you have sex with someone, you're having sex with someone? It has to mean more than that. So it means something like, don't you know that when you engage in the physical act of sex, you're also engaging in an act of communication that is soul to soul? Or don't you know that you're engaging in a radical act of self-commitment, bringing one new reality out of the two? So our culture is partly right. Sex is an act of radical self-expression, but it is always expressing total commitment. Now think about this for a second. If sex is not just physical, it's not just an appetite, and... If sex is an act of radical self-commitment and self-giving, 
then sexual sin would be to communicate with your body what you cannot or will not communicate with your whole life. That would be the most inauthentic thing you could possibly do. So put it another way. You must not yield to your desires outside the context of total life commitment. Put it another way. You must not engage in physical oneness without engaging in whole life oneness. Put it another way. You must not engage in the radical self-commitment of sex without the even more radical self-commitment between a husband and a wife. Why does this matter for you? Why does it, why does it matter, this, the, the Bible's view of sex? Because if you treat sex like it's just physical, if you treat sex like it's just an appetite, if you treat sex, if you engage in sex outside of the radical self-commitment between husband and wife, you will hurt yourself. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says this, flee from sexual immorality. Doesn't say fight with it, doesn't say toy with it. It's, bro, if you're getting a fight with sexual temptation, you're going to lose. It says run away. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Now, that's so weird, isn't it? Right? If you were writing the Bible, or, I, or we were playing a fill-in-the-blank game, say this is your first day at church ever, and I say, let's play fill-in-the-blank. <clears throat> All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against fill-in-the-blank. What would you say? Probably God. You might even say sins against the other person. You might even say sins against, I mean, public decency if you lived in like 1850 or something. It says you hurt you when you treat sex as merely physical and when you engage in an act of radical self-commitment outside of the radical self-commitment between a husband and a wife. Now, I suspect that you already know how you hurt you, because I already know how I hurt me. But just to be clear, you hurt your ability to connect deeply and gain intimacy with a spouse someday. You know, your sexuality is fragile. You can break it. It can put scars on the deepest places in your soul. Bless you. And if you break this whole life commitment mechanism, you hurt your ability to connect deeply and gain intimacy with your spouse someday. You hurt your ability to be satisfied with your sexual relationship when you do have a partner someday. You can end up with sexual addictions and dysfunctions. You can end up with STIs and the mental and physical scars of abortion. You hurt yourself when you take something as beautiful and fragile as your sexuality and use it outside the boundaries God intended. Here's the thing. God knows how easy it is for you to hurt you with this incredibly powerful thing, so he drew a fence around it to protect you. Marriage between a husband and a wife is the fence God drew to keep you from hurting you. When I was a, a little kid, my father was in law enforcement, 
And so he had guns in the house for his job. He had handguns for his job. It's an incredibly, a handgun is an incredibly powerful thing. Now, in his hands, in the hands of law enforcement, could be used for incredible good. But that power that can be so good also can be so destructive. So what did he do? He locked it in a safe in the house that I didn't know the combination to when I was a kid. He took that incredibly powerful thing that could be destructive and put boundaries around it to keep his family safe. God knows how incredibly powerful sex is, and so he has drawn boundaries around it to keep you safe. So in essence, this is the heart of the Christian view of sex. It is not just physical. It is not just an appetite. It is for radical self-commitment to another person. That's the heart of it. But the Christian view of sex is also multi-layered, kind of like a wedding cake. Radical self-commitment is the bottom layer, but the other layers of the cake help fill in the whole picture. The other layers of the cake help you understand why the Bible, why God would draw this fence around sex. So with that in mind, I want to give you four purposes of sex from the Bible that revolve around or build, I should say, build on top of this primary biblical view of sex. And if you want to write them down, you can. Maybe in your notes in your phone. The purposes of sex. Number one, sex is a promise. Sex is a promise you make to someone with your body. You are saying, I am totally committed to you in every possible way. Now listen, the part of the reason that these purposes are so important here is because, you know, I mentioned before that so oftentimes the church, or maybe even our families, if you grew up in that kind of family, would say, hey, here's what the Bible says. And you would say, why? And you'd go like, I don't know, just don't do it. It was not helpful because we didn't have this robust view of sexuality in the Bible. So these purposes help fill that out to give some of the why behind it. Because if you tell your little kids, hey, don't do that, and they say, why? You say, because I told you so. It's technically true. It is unhelpful. You know what it makes them want to do? Break the rules, man. So the first purpose of sex, a promise. Now, if you want evidence that sex is a promise, there is this crazy example of this in the movie Vanilla Sky, which was, Tom, it's an older movie with Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz. And it's this scene where Cameron Diaz is totally freaking out in a car because her and Tom Cruise had this sexual fling and then it ended and she's confronting him about it. And there's just this short little clip where she talks about sex as a promise. Take a look at this clip. Stop the car! Don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not? <laughs> Don't you love Tom Cruise's face on that? I just thought that was wild. That is a, that is a rat, I, I saw it in the movie, I never let it go because it is a radically biblical idea about sex buried in a Tom Cruise movie and so hopefully we'll see some more of that in Top Gun 2. <laughs> but she says, don't you know that when you sleep with somebody, your body makes a promise whether you do or not. Pfft, whoa, that's crazy. It's just built into your body. Now, I, I'm going to say something that maybe I shouldn't even say. And if I had a camera person, I'd probably tell them to take the camera off right now. Because I want to speak to those of you who are in here today that you're not even sure that God is real. You can, you can reject God's 
word on this. You can say, uh, Pastor Jared, I know where you're headed with this. No, thank you. But you cannot escape the biological reality that sex was created to be a commitment mechanism in human beings. You simply cannot escape it. That can be true whether you believe in God or not. And so this can affect you whether you, this will affect you whether you believe it, believe in God or not. Every day you are proving the truth of principles that you may not even be aware of in your own life. And this is one of those laws of sexuality, just like if you stick your hand into the fire, you will get burned, which is that when you have sex, you make a promise. And you might say, well, that, that doesn't even, I, that's not even true. That's not even true. I've had sex dozens of times, and it's, there's no promise. I don't even feel any of that. None of that makes sense. And that's the most terrifying place you could possibly be. Because what happens when you find that one person, that one relationship that God puts you in, and you want to commit to them, you want to make a promise to them, you want to make a promise with your body, but it doesn't work anymore. That's a scary place to be in. When you have sex, you are making a promise with your body. We already saw the, the verse on this in 1 Corinthians 6.16, where it says, uh, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. While our society may see sex primarily as recreation, the Bible views sex as communication. You are making a promise with your body. Now, think about this in the context of a husband and a wife. Now, your body is saying exactly what your mouth said. You said, for better or for worse, for sicker or for poorer, Yeah, you know, it's like for worse, for sicker, for poorer, all the bad ones. You made the promise, and now you're reinforcing that promise with your body. So your whole life is in alignment. You're living as an authentic person. So I wrote down, um, uh, I wrote down one application point for married people, which is that you're supposed to have lots of sex. If you are married, Christians should have more sex than anyone. You should always be available to your spouse. Women under 40, be available for your husband. Men over 40, be available for your wives. Because the more often you make the promise with your body, you are reinforcing the intimacy that you must fight so hard for. All right, purpose first, purpose of sex is promise. The second purpose of sex is procreation. There's a whole... This could be its own sermon, but instead I've got a short point for you. So I don't know if you know this or not, God intended sex to make babies. This is another legitimate reason to confine sex to a husband and wife. In Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Have lots of babies. God loves babies. He just loves babies. Can't get enough of babies. As Christians, we love babies. Babies are awesome. Babies are like our favorite thing in the whole world. We love babies. We're absolutely pro-baby at this church. God intended sex to lead to procreation. Now, there's a more nuanced view on that. I'm not going to go into all that because, like I said, that's kind of its own whole message. But the big point is sex is for procreation. That's one of the reasons to re refrain from having sex until you are married so that you're not creating a human life outside of a loving family. 
Every human baby has a mother and a father, biologically speaking, and marriage is the structure God created to provide safety and stability for children. And so saving sex for uh, marriage is one way of being selfless with your sex and um, creating a safe and loving environment for children. Number three, the third purpose of sex is for pleasure. Again, a short point. You probably don't need a whole lot of encouragement on this. There's a, did you know there's a whole book in the Bible dedicated to sex and lovemaking? You didn't know that because you don't read your Bible. <laughs> now you're just going to start reading it, right? You're going to try to find that. It's called Leviticus. Look it up. <laughs> now, the Song of Songs is explicit because God created sex to be pleasurable. I picked a PG verse, Song of Songs 1-4. The NIV says, take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. And it's not so they can play checkers. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that God created sex this way. You know, he, God could have done anything he wanted to. He could have set up a system where when you look, in, you, you look into another person's eyes for five seconds, boom, pregnant. Could have done it. But God made sex, and he wanted it to be pleasurable. There's another application point here for married couples, but I forget what it is. Our society tends to collapse sex down to pleasure, but for Christians, we know that it's one part of a, of a much bigger and more meaningful whole. That's the Christian view on it. And Christians, Christians don't have to live for pleasure, so we don't have to live for sex. You can live without sex, but you can't live without love. And so pleasure is one part of it. Number four, the fourth purpose for sex, and here's our final one. Sex is a picture. A picture. Now, this one sounds a little weird, if you're not a Christian or if you haven't heard it before, but it's actually a very beautiful idea. Jesus loves and cares for his church. He meets her needs. He even dies for her. He lays down his life for the church. And a husband is supposed to treat his wife in the same way. The church submits to Christ, loves Christ, follows Christ, and a wife is supposed to treat her husband the same way. And in that way, Sex, in the context of a husband and wife, is a picture of how much Jesus loves his church and is one with her church. Do you hear the incredible mutuality of Christian marriage? Do you hear the self-sacrificing nature of Christian marriage? It is the way to stay married, where you both say, you're first, and they say, no, you're first. No, I'm going to put you first. I'm going to put you first. I'm going to put your needs first. I'm going to put your needs first. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to love you. That's Christian marriage, and it's a picture of Jesus in the church. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 is where it speaks about this. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. Sex is supposed to be an illustration, that's the key word, of the way that Jesus and the church are one. And so if you have sex with someone you're not fully committed to, you're destroying the picture. You're destroying, you're distorting the illustration. And when you, you sleep with somebody that you're mostly committed to, and maybe you live with them, you say, like, there is nothing about Jesus that is mostly committed to his church. There is nothing about the church that is mostly committed to Jesus. We are all in on it, and it destroys the illustration. Now, don't, don't pull it up yet, Marina. 
I'll tell you when, okay? But a couple of years ago, I had a bunch of leaders over from the church, and we were doing a leadership exercise together, and I had them draw an illustration (laughs) of the Mona Lisa. And some people put together like this beautiful, Andy Stockton, our guitar player today, he's quite the artist. You could tell it was the Mona Lisa, you know what I'm saying? It was like, not like, hey, there's the Mona Lisa, but you could tell, okay? And then Judith drew this. Can we take that down? This is disturbing. I, you know, I put that up there to say, not all illustrations are created equal. You know what I'm saying? Some are better than others. And part of the goal of the Christian life is that you give people the clearest possible picture of who Jesus is and who God is and what he's like and how deeply he loves and how radically he sacrifices and how unbelievably committed he is to his church. And so you structure your life in such a way that every part of it, not just your sex, but every part of it is giving the world a crystal clear illustration of the beauty of Jesus. And when you sin sexually, you hurt you, but you're also distorting the illustration God intends for you to show the world. So those are the four purposes of sex. We have a picture for pleasure, for procreation, we have promise. Sex is an act of radical self-commitment. But as we close today, I want you to step back with me and view the big picture of your relationship with God and your sexuality. I know that every person here today has some sexual sin in your past. Whether it was what you did before you were married, it was acting on your same-sex attraction, It was a time when you broke your marriage vows. It was who you've slept with as a boyfriend or girlfriend or what you've looked at on the screen. There is no person who hasn't dealt with sexual sin. And that road doesn't lead anywhere good. In fact, the end of that spiritual road is death. When you sin sexually, you hurt you. So I have to close with a reminder here for you that God loves you through Christ. God is not, it's not that God loves people who never sin sexually. God loves broken people who are so sick and tired of their sin and the way it's wreaked havoc on their life and destroyed them, who say, I'm so sick of this and who run to Jesus for mercy and forgiveness and find that he wipes your sin away. That's one of the things that Christ gives you, that your past Though your sins were like crimson, they can become white as snow through the blood of Christ. That when you turn from your sin to follow Jesus, your shame, he took your shame on the cross. You understand that? He was shamed on the cross. He was humiliated on the cross for you so that you can stand before God, not having to hide or cower or feel guilty or ashamed, but knowing that through Christ, you are loved. And that is a promise from the word of God. 
Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not a little bit of condemnation. It's not some condemnation. It's not like God says, well, most of it's wiped away, but I'm really unhappy about that one thing. When you run to Christ, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And I want to I issue a challenge to you today. Some of you, some of you have been sinning sexually for so long that your judgment's gotten kind of cloudy, that your commitment mechanism has been broken. You, you, you feel sort of numb. There, there's a distance between you and God. You feel like you cannot connect to God and you don't know why, but you're still involved in sexual sin. Some of you are so desperate for the affection of a boyfriend or a girlfriend that you're giving yourself away. And yet God has awakened something in you today to say, hey, you were made for more than this. So I want to issue you a challenge. I believe some of you in here today need to take an entire year from today, if God leads you to it, to say, this is going to be a year where I will stay single and pursue purity so that I can grow in my relationship with God I can, I can let go of the sin that so in, easily entangles. I can start to feel in my relationship with God again. And when I do enter back into a relationship, I can enter into it as a healthy person with a healthy and godly view of sex. And you, would, you can write the date. It's July 21st. Maybe on the inside cover of your Bible, put it somewhere where you're going to see it and just write that date down. And then on the connection card, in just a minute when we give together, there's a box on there that says, commit to the one-year challenge of singleness and purity. And we're going to just send you some resources to get started on that journey, but more than anything, and by the way, you can check that confidential box on the bottom, and when you do, uh, it only comes to me. I want to pray for you. Because I believe God wants healing in your life, and I believe he has a plan for you. I want to invite the band to come back up right now as we close, and I'm going to pray a prayer right now. Maybe you could bow your head and pray with me, and maybe you need to make this prayer your prayer today. God, I'm starting to believe. God, I'm believing that you have a plan for sex. And I have struggled so much in the past. I've been tempted. Sometimes I've succeeded. Sometimes I've failed. But God, I know that you have grace for me and mercy for me. Thank you for that. God, would you give me the strength I need to live a godly and holy life to give this world a great and clear picture of you? Give me the help that I need to do this. In Jesus' name.